this day, Lord, to come together and to hear your word preached and to sing of you and to hear of the great things you've done. And uh, we pray that we would apply them to our lives, Lord, and help us to um, turn from sin to you. Help us to focus on you as the week begins. Help us to rely on the promises that you've written down in your word. Help my uh, brother to preach. Lord, help those that aren't with us today because of illness or anything like that. Lord, we pray that you would be with them and help them to know that we, we love them and that you love them and just comfort them. And uh, we are grateful to you for this time. I'm grateful to you for this place. And help us to um, focus on you for the beginning of the week here, Lord. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. And I'll be reading verses 18 through 22. John chapter 13, beginning at verse 18. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you this before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who believe, oh, excuse me, he who receives Whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. I'll stop there. Amen. Now here, here you have these three, there, there are three statements here that, are, that have to do with testimony and witness. We're going to focus upon the treachery of Judas Iscariot. But I want you to see this because this is very important. So, he doesn't want his disciples to be deceived. Or, uh, um, excuse me. I do not speak concerning all of you, he says. I know whom I have chosen, but, the, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. So, the first witness in the events that are about to transpire is the word of God itself. The word of God testified that Jesus would be betrayed by one of his closest friends. So that's, that's the first. And that really is taken up in um, verse 18. Now, now note verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. So first, the scriptures bore witness, but now there is something about my person, about who I am, that I want you to believe, and that's why I'm telling you this. We'll get there next week. But now look at verse 20, which, which doesn't seem to, to fit here. What's going on with verse 20? Most assuredly, I say to you, 
He who receives me, excuse me, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. What does that verse have to do with what's going on in this context? Well, to catch the big picture here, you, have, you had Jesus pick 12 disciples. And now, one of those disciples is a traitor. But Jesus sends out the 11. How are we to trust those 11? Well, because Jesus knew all along that there was one who was a traitor. More details in two weeks on that verse. But here, note what Jesus says. I do not speak concerning all of you. So he knew, so first and foremost, here, the treachery of Judas. Jesus knew that they were not all traitors. And this must have given them a great deal of comfort to know this, to know this particular truth that, okay, it's, it's not all of us. Now look at verse Um, 24. Simon therefore motioned to him, to, to John, to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And it's Judas. Judas is the betrayer. He's the one who turns his back on the Lord Jesus Christ. But this gives the, it's intended, this, this text is intended to give a little comfort to the disciples. It's not all of you, it's one of you. In the other gospels, they all ask, who is it, Lord? Which one of us? Nobody thought it would have been Judas. But Judas was so deceptive and so cunning that it could not have been him. There's something significant, too. John is on his right hand. and Well, there's a couple of things going on here. You know, when we think of the Lord's Supper, we think of uh, the, the Da Vinci, right? But that's not how it was. That they didn't have chairs, and they didn't have a big spread like that with a, what's the Thanksgiving thing called? They didn't have a cornucopia. You know, they're, they're Jews. <laughs> that's not how it was. They didn't have that kind of spread. It was a low table. They were all basically uh, uh, laying or resting upon uh, some form of mattresses or pillows or maybe even the floor, had their hands on the table laying around this thing. But to his right and to his left were John and Judas. And those were the seats, really, of privilege or of esteem they would be given to the guest of honor so remember i cited this passage uh, last week i believe it was last week look at matthew chapter 20 i, di- I didn't uh, go to this text i just referenced it but in john chapter 20 you have john and james mother uh, matthew excuse me matthew chapter 20 you have John's, uh, John and James's mother ask Jesus a very interesting question. In verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Those, because those were the two places of honor. Now think about it. J- 
John is sitting there, and you can almost assume John was there. If you read the gospel records, you realize that John was the youngest of the disciples, and he is also a cousin to Jesus on Mary's side. So he's sitting there next to Jesus on the right hand, and Judas is on the left, which was also a place of honor. Which means that the disciples must have respected him. He's Judas Iscariot is his name because he's from Issachar. He was the only one of them who was from Issachar. And that region was a little bit more wealthy, a little bit more affluent, and that's probably why he handled the money bag. He probably came from money. So the disciples more than likely, and maybe even Jesus, you know, they voted and they gave him the money bag. But he held the money bag. And nobody thought, well, he's a thief. Nobody. There wasn't any kind of suspicion about Judas Iscariot. Judas was a model church member. He was, at, he was at Sunday school, came to the service, he took the Lord's Supper every Sunday. When there was a fellowship afterwards, he was there. He was at all the members' meetings. He came to small group Bible studies. I mean, this guy was no demerits on his charts. They were all stars all the way through. So he's sitting in this place of honor, place of prestige. Yet, Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen. And I think specifically now he's speaking of the 11, but of course he chose Judas also. He chose Judas Iscariot that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That the scriptures might be fulfilled. And here's what scripture he's referencing. He says, He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. So he instructs his disciples. He washes their feet. He prepares them. They understand that this act of humility they ought to imitate with one another. But now that the scripture might be fulfilled, I have to reveal this particular truth so that you might know it and that you might have confidence in the word of God. One author puts it this way, Judas's treachery comes as no surprise to the readers. So if you're reading the Gospels, we're not surprised that Judas was a treacherous man. Look back at chapter 6. Chapter 6 and verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? You see, that's why I think that Judas is included in his statement where he says, did I not choose you? He may have the eleven in mind in particular, but I think Judas is also there because he chose him also. And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. But then again, also in chapter 12, verse 4, chapter 12, verse 4, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, and you see how he's always described that way? Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, so that you know exactly who it is who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
Now consider, consider, of course, he's already called a betrayer, but look at what is added. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. So the reader already knows that there's something going on with, with Judas. Something not right. The reader knows. But now the disciples didn't, of course. We, we have privileges and advantages when we read the text that the disciples themselves didn't. They didn't know these things were going on. They didn't know that this would unfold this way. And now, little by little, what John is doing, he's, he's exposing who Judas is, and he does this in the context of affirming the truthfulness of the Scriptures, the, dependabil- the dependability of the Word of God. And the text that this is taken from, this statement that Jesus makes, he who, dips his bread, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me, is Psalm 41. So if you would please turn there, Psalm 41, and the passage is in verse 9, but I'm going to read from verse 4. This is a psalm of David. And David writes, I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. So so this is a psalm of David. This is not a psalm where uh Jesus is, uh, you know, the pre-incarnate son is speaking. Listen to what he says here very clearly. He says, for I have sinned against you. In verse 4. Well, that's not the son of God. But now verse 7. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And what John is saying is that this passage is now being fulfilled in this interaction between Jesus and the disciples. This has to do, of course, you know, theologians like to use fancy words. They, you know, I don't know if they want to make themselves important, but they talk about Jesus' messianic consciousness, consciousness. He was conscious that he was the Messiah. He was the Davidic king. He was the promised and awaited king that Israel was longing for. And he is, in essence, a pattern, or his life follows the pattern of David's life, yet, of course, without sin. Who was this man, though, that David was speaking of? More than likely, it's Ahithophel. you remember who Ahithophel is? Can you spell Ahithophel? Look at, look at Samuel. Look at Second Samuel with me. It's an important um, passage in Second Samuel. 
I think we'll be looking at chapter 16, 2 Samuel 16. So here you have this messianic consciousness. Jesus knew that he was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited king of Israel. And the life of David, really, patterned, is, is, is patterned after, and I've said that on purpose, the life of David is patterned after the coming life of Christ. There are events that occur in the life of David that are foreshadows and that they will be fulfilled in the life of Christ, in his coming into the world. And this is one of the ways that the New Testament interprets or helps us read the Old Testament. Uh, generally, when we think of reading the Old Testament, what we think of are, we think of straightforward prophecies. There are many of those, right? The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Well, we know where that is. We go to Matthew and to Luke. The virgin conceives and bears a son. But now when you have a passage like this one, what do you do? How, how do you interpret this? Is, are the apostles and is Jesus misinterpreting and misapplying the Bible? Or is the Bible a tapestry that is woven a particular way? Have you, you could do this with this rug, with any rug. You look at the back of this thing and it kind of looks ugly. You ever flipped over a rug? Right? Does it look nice? Do you want to walk on that? Is that what you want displayed, the back of the rug? No, you flip the rug over. And when you flip the rug over, you see this beautiful artwork. And I'm not saying that the Old Testament is ugly, but once you flip into the New Testament, that wonderful tapestry is woven with precision. And even history itself and figures and events in histories become types and patterns and figures that point to and will be fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So now you have this event now in the, in the, um, in the life of David. And particularly, it has to do with Ahithophel. And I said 2 Samuel, um, chapter, it's not chapter 16, we're going to chapter uh, 17. Um, look at look at uh, sixteen, chapter twenty three. It's the last verse there. It has to do with the advice of Ahithophel, and the advice of Ahithophel. Listen to how it is described. Second uh, Samuel. 16.23. Now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both to David and to Absalom. So, David, so Ahithophel was one of David's closest friends. And this language that is used that... Uh, he ate at my own table. That language, you, you also see that in Second Samuel chapter, uh, um, you also see that in Second Samuel 16, when David brings Mephibosheth, which was the son of Jonathan, into his own house. And what does he do for him? He lets him eat from his own table. And more than likely, Ahithophel, since he was a trusted advisor and a counselor of David, he would eat from David's provisions, which means that he didn't have to worry about food. 
Whenever the king laid out a spread, breakfast, lunch, or dinner, he had an open invite. He and his family, and they can come and feed, feed and eat as much as they wanted with the king. And he was a trusted friend, a very close companion. The king loved Ahithophel. Verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come up upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. Remember Judas Iscariot. What does he ask for when he goes to get Jesus? Soldiers. He brings a bunch of soldiers with clubs and spears and all kinds of stuff to betray his master. This is the advice that Ahithophel gives to Absalom. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak. And that's, that's the and make him afraid. And that is, Jesus is in that same position. He's weary and weak. Where is he when they found him? He's at Gethsemane. He's praying, sweating great drops of blood and in agony. And then, Jesus, then uh, Judas comes with a troop of, of soldiers. I will strike only the king. The others will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying, please Absalom and all the elders of Israel. So um, he gives his advice. But now his advice isn't followed. It's not what happens. uh, Hushai's advice is followed. And when that happens, Ahithophel doesn't take it kindly. And Ahithophel realizes something. I just betrayed the king. Exactly. I just betrayed the king. So now look at verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled a donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. How did Judas die? He hung himself. And he fell over and burst open. So his fate is the same. So you see, not every single event, I'm not, I'm not trying to be uh, a superficial here and, and what one author calls parallelomania, right? So every parallel in the Bible is, in, no, I'm not doing that. But just overall, you see that these events in the life of David, what they're doing is that they're foreshadowing and they're pointing forward to the greater King David who is going to be betrayed by his own close friend. And the fate of both is the same. They're both, they both die by hanging. They both hung, as it were. So that is the the historical setting. The historical setting of Jesus' statement is the betrayal of Ahithophel of King David. That is the historical setting of Psalm 41. This place that Ahithophel had, boy, that's a hard name to say so many times, the the, 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 the fate that Ahithophel had is Judas's fate. 
The place that Ahithophel had, this place of privilege and honor and esteem, is the same place that Ahithophel had. And what did they do? They despised it. They despised that honor of being close to God's king, of loving God's king, and of serving him with gladness. They were opportunists. And they were looking for the right opportunity to betray their master. One author writes, he says this, the primary function of the Old Testament quotation in the present passage is the assertion of Jesus' prior knowledge of Judas's treachery and the corresponding claim that the betrayal fulfilled Old Testament scripture. So Jesus knew that Jesus was going to betray him, but then you ask the question, well, how did he know? Well, you can say he's God, and if you look at John, if you turn back there with me, John chapter 13, verse 19, that you may believe that I am he, John makes the same statement. But there's something previous to that in verse 18, and it is this, is that this betrayal was prophesied in Scripture. Particularly, it was prophesied in the life of David. And David fits as a pattern for the life of Christ. This one who hated Jesus, the entire time that he was with the Lord, and and. Maybe he, um, we know that he washed Judas' feet. He served him. Washed his feet. Cared for him as one of his own disciples. And what happens? He's the one who betrays him. And this was all part and parcel of our Lord's life. Part of his sufferings was that this person who was to be one of his greatest friends would betray him. The one who ate his bread. The one who was closest to him. Now, uh, when you think about this, these are the kind of things that still happen in the church today. It's men and women. And look, Paul, when he's speaking to the elders in Ephesus, what does he say to them? He says to them down in, in um, it's in Acts chapter 20, and in verse 29, Acts twenty twenty nine. It's The statement is in verse 30, I'm sorry, in verse 30. But I'll read 29 for the context. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there are going to be those who come into the church, and they're not going to spare God's people. But now look at verse 30. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. So even from among the people of God, and that's exactly what happened with Jesus, it's exactly what happened with David, and I'm certain there are other patterns in the Old Testament where it happened to them the same. That you have men rise up from among God's own people. Now, what are some points of application here? Should, just, should we be viciously suspicious of every single person? 
No. And Jesus, even, even, even the custom of foot washing, he did not refuse to give it to Judas Iscariot. He washed his feet. And he knew that Judas was a betrayer. He knew because the scriptures prophesied and because he was God. But he did not refuse to do that. No, we ought not to be viciously suspicious. We ought to continue to serve the Lord. We ought to continue to serve him with joy and with gladness. Paul, who experienced many of these same things, he constantly speaks this way. um, Listen to um, 1 Timothy. This is Paul. 1 Timothy. Chapter 1. And um, verse 18. This charge, Paul writes, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. That by them you may wage the good warfare. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. They've, they've shipwrecked their faith. So what should we do when we see, I mean, I've, I've been a Christian now 15 years. Something like that. And um, I've been a pastor eight-ish years. And man, I have seen it. I, 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 guys, who, guys who we were going to send out to be pastors of churches betray, betray us. So what do you do with that? You mark such men. You look at the example of how they have shipwrecked their faith and you pray that that would never happen to you. Listen to what he says. Of whom, of whom are, and, and here he names them. I mean, I mean, you think about it. For for the past, just for for uh, conversation's sake, uh, I'll use a round number. For the past two thousand years, people have been reading about Hymenaeus and Alexander and how they were treacherous. And Alexander, you've heard that name, but not many people name their kids Hymenaeus or Judas. <laughs> Whom I deliver to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme, right? To deliver someone to Satan means to put them out of the church. That's what that means. You you put them out of the church. That's um, one place. There's another place in um, 2 Timothy. And it's in um, 2 Timothy chapter 1, also in chapter 1. And I'll read from verse 13. And now this is, this is Paul's last epistle in the New Testament, the last one he wrote, maybe his last letter ever to anyone, and he's writing it to Timothy because he knows he's going to die soon. And what does he say? Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me. 
You think of that. An entire region. He's not talking about Asia, the continent, but a particular region. And all of those in that particular region have now turned away from Paul. The, the, why do I bring up these kinds of passages? Is Because the sufferings that our Savior experienced, we will experience those same sufferings in this world. And particularly betrayal. It really is the, the worst kind of person is someone who betrays a trusted friend. And now look at what he does. He doesn't just keep it general. Among whom are Phygelus and Hermaginus. Again, I've never heard anybody called Phygelus or Hermaginus. But it's probably not because they're betrayers. It's just because their names are horrible. Verse, verse 16. The, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. For he often refreshed me and was not afraid of, uh, ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. So you have this repeated pattern in the Bible of those who are closest to God's people betraying and turning from God's people, turning, turning away to all manner of sin. And now here in particular with the Lord Jesus, it wasn't, it wasn't just that Judas turned away from the Lord. You have Peter do that. Peter abandons, I mean, all of the disciples, really, they abandoned the Lord when he needed them. And when he was praying, they couldn't even stay awake with him. Right? They were so weak. That wasn't the issue. It was the betrayal. Jesus was sold for the price of a slave for 30 shekels of silver. Look, this Judas probably thought to himself, look, I thought this guy was going to be a revolutionary and become the king of Jerusalem. And I'm listening to what he's saying, and this guy keeps telling us he's going to die. So I've got to pull this ripcord and figure out some way to get something out of this because, yeah, he's going to die. Or going to get himself killed. I don't know which one he's going to do. So he sells him for the price of a slave, 30 pieces of silver. He betrays, in, and that's what he says himself, I have betrayed innocent blood. He knows exactly what he did. And you know what Judas didn't find? He did not find the way that Esau, as, as Esau, he did not find a place for repentance. He took those 30 pieces of silver and he didn't keep them. He gave them back to the Jewish leaders and they threw them out. You see, but God's people will experience those same kind of things. And what, what happens over time, when that happens to an individual or to a group of people, what does it do to you? Well, it makes you really, it makes you not trust people. There is a tendency in the heart of a person then to say, you know what, I'm going to close myself off and I am not going to allow anyone else to get that close to hurt me. But 
The Lord Jesus knew that this would happen. The scripture prophesied that it would happen. So what this, in, in particular, that is what our focus is on this morning, is that the scriptures prophesied that that would happen. So what should that do to us? Well, that should make us the kind of people who not, we're not, uh, you know, uh, we, we shouldn't have a list at home, right? And, and, you know, on that list is, I think Eric might be the first one to betray me, and, you know, Adam is number three, and... Lucas is like number five, right? We shouldn't, right? No, we shouldn't be at home putting together like this kind of, you know, a, betray, a betrayer, possible betrayer list. What it, what it should do to us is that those who, who come to us, as, as Jesus says in verse 13, listen to the passage. Most assuredly, I say to you, be confident in this. He who receives whoever I send receives me. We, we don't have, we are, we are not the great I am, so we don't know what's in, what's in the heart of any particular person. Therefore, if people come, they, they, either we witness to people or Christian people come and, and they want to become members of this church, the best that we could do is receive them because Christ has sent them. Well, how do you know that? Well, there's ways to tell. What, are their do- what do they believe what doctrines do they believe? And then what effect has this had on their life? What kind of life do they live in light of the things that they believe? And what kind of service do they provide to God and to his people? Many other things, but just those three. Now, when people come to our church and we assess their doctrine and their life and their service to God and to his people, the most that we could do then is match those things with the word of God and say, okay, then we'll receive them into fellowship. Not only will we receive them into fellowship, but we will love them and we will care for them. And if they do betray us, then we know that we are suffering the way that our Savior suffered. God has promised that these are the things. Listen, if they despised our master, they will despise us also. We shouldn't have this mindset that we are going to have a more favored uh, position in this world and that people are going to treat us better than they treated Jesus. They will treat us worse. Always will treat us worse. And we should not be surprised when that evil even arises from among us. One thing that you can do to help you with this is read the Word of God. You have it at the very beginning of your Bibles. At the very beginning of your Bible, you have it in two ways. One, a creature that God created to be subject to the man and the woman is a betrayer. And he's used by the devil to deceive them. And then, in the following chapter of the Bible, you have two brothers. They, they have the same father, same mother. And one betrays the other, kills his brother. You have these patterns and these examples all throughout the scriptures. So what it should do is, do do we mourn? Yes. Are we heartbroken when it happens? Yes. Are we distraught? Yes. Uh, um, uh, I say we, but I'm a member of this church. But the church in Florida, where I came from, we have experienced that kind of gossip and slander so much that I'll give you an example. I'll give you a vivid illustration. It was, I think it was, it was Pastor Keith. Pastor Keith was, 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 uh, was somewhere. 
I won't say where. It was somewhere. Not in this state. In a completely different state. Didn't, right? So, and he's standing in line, and he starts talking to this pastor that everyone in here would know if I said his name. And there's a young guy standing there who Keith has no idea who this guy is, but he overhears this guy is from Orlando or from Florida. And Pastor Keith kind of talks to him, asks him where church he goes to, and the, the guy asks Pastor Keith, and he said, well, I'm in New York, but uh, I used to attend a church in Florida, Cornerstone Church. And the guy says to Pastor Keith, oh, I heard that church is really legalistic. And Pastor Keith says, well, how do you know? Have you ever been there? He says, no, it's just what people have told me. You see? It's, it's a, that, that kind of gossip and maligning of our character, it doesn't get me upset anymore. You know why? Because that's the way they treated our Lord. They're not going to treat me any better. No, but I'm not expecting to walk into any place and people say, oh, you're a Christian, hooray. You know? No, I'm expecting people to treat me poorly. And they do. And to talk bad about me. And then when I fail, I expect them to throw it in my face. Oh, you're supposed to be a Christian. I can't believe you did that. Why? Because that is the way that our Lord was treated. He was treated unjustly. And we ought to be prepared to be treated that way for the sake of Christ. And if you recoil from that, what does it say about your relationship to your master? If you think to yourself, I don't want that, I don't, you know, I want people to like me. So what I'll do is I'll be an undercover Christian. You know, I'm not going to curse. I'm not going to laugh at their foul jokes, but I'm not going to say why. I'm not, I'm not going to tell people I'm a Christian because they don't want to feel that offense. But if we're Christian people, if we're disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what we should expect. Our Lord knew he would be betrayed. He knew who would betray him. And he had confidence that the word of God would be fulfilled. Because in that same psalm, look at Psalm 41 again. Judas betrays Psalm 41. Right, verse 9. What does it what does it say? Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But now look at verse 10. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before you, excuse me, set me before your face forever. Bless the Lord, God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And what if... You want to ask my interpretation of this passage. He's speaking of his resurrection. Yes, Judas will betray me, but I will be raised up. And one day, I will repay. It, it, that, that will be the most, you know, the most, the most fearful moment in the life of Judas Iscariot and men just like him who betray the Lord and betray his church are the day when they will stand before Christ and have to give an account. Judas will have to see his face again. 
right? When, when he kissed the Lord Jesus, that was not the last time he's going to see Jesus' face. He is going to see his face as his judge, and he is going to have to give an account. It, it, and that will be terrifying and shameful. That's right. When he says to Judas, the betrayer, give an account, Judas. When he says to him, friend, what do you have to say for yourself? He is going to ask the way that they did in the book of Revelation, right? Let the mountains fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That is what he is going to beg for. And I pray that no one here is ever found in that position. Let's pray. Lord God, blessed be your name and your faithfulness to your people from everlasting to everlasting. Lord, as we consider this treachery of Judas and that's betrayal that he committed against the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Life, Lord. Yes, we can, we can be uh, judgmental and, and we can be um, critical of his actions, but Lord, first and foremost, we pray that you would keep us, Lord, that you would keep us by your spirit, that you would work upon our minds and hearts with your, by your word, so that we would never turn from you. And help us, Lord God, in the context of the local church when things like this happen, to depend upon you, to trust in you, and to know that you are pleased with us and that our enemies will not triumph over us, but that you, Lord God, will repay them. And you promise in your word, you say it clearly, vengeance is mine, I will repay so, Lord, we commit them into your hands, and we say, Lord, do with our enemies what you will. If you choose in your kindness to turn them from their sins and folly, may we be gracious to receive them as you have received us in Christ. But if they continue in their wicked ways, Lord God, we ask that you would judge them according to your own righteousness. In- this, this, this.